I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1, we're going to read the entire chapter, but it's the first five verses that are our text as we begin a new series on this letter to the Galatians. It's page 1809, 1809 in your pew Bible. Galatians chapter 1, we'll begin at verse 1, hear the word of God. Paul, an apostle sent not from men nor by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers with me, to the churches in Galatia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preached to you, let him be eternally condemned. As we've already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. Am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Or am I still trying, or am I trying rather to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preached is not something that man made up. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from birth and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not consult any man, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was. But I went immediately into Arabia and later returned to Damascus. And after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I am writing to you is no lie, Later, I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praised God because of me. That's for the reading of God's holy word. Again, our text is the opening five verses of Galatians. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, It was a few years back, I believe. It was a sunny winter day. It had snowed, maybe not quite as much snow as we've had of late, but there was certainly enough snow on the fields that when the wind picked up, it whipped it across the road. I was on my way to Smithville to make some visit to see someone, uh, and as I came uh, down the road, suddenly there was a rather significant snowdrift on the road. It was a otherwise beautiful black asphalt road, but suddenly there was this six-inch, eight-inch drift that I hit. 
and my car was very quickly shoved into the ditch. And fortunately, there was a lot of snow, and there was no issue, and I was able to be extricated without too much difficulty. But it was a reminder to me that, that Newton was right when he said an object in motion stays in motion unless acted upon by an outside force. That is, I would have kept going happily straight down the road without any difficulty, but the force of the snow, the pressure of the snow, pushed me into the ditch. That's, a, that's an experience we've all had. We've certainly had lately driving in the weather that we've had. But we have it not just in terms of our physical experience, walking down the road on a windy day, you feel the wind push against you, but also in a spiritual sense, in an emotional sense. We live in a world, in a pressurized environment that wants to push us in a particular direction. We are called to be in this world, but not of it. We are called to be witnesses, lights, a lamp upon a stand, a city upon a hill. We are called to stand out. We can't avoid the world. We can't go out of the society we're in. We must remain within it. But to do that in a context of an environment where the wind blows, where drifts pile up, where where there's pressure upon us that pushes us aside into the ditches of life, We can find ourselves at times in very difficult places. That's true and has always been true of the church of Jesus Christ since the fall into sin. We've seen when we read through the Old Testament, when we were studying the book of Exodus, we saw very quickly how Israel fell into the ditch of apostasy, of rejecting the Lord, of doubting his faithfulness towards them. The entire Old Testament is a long, drawn-out explanation of this, isn't it? Of no matter how blessed God makes one, we tend to fall. We have this natural inclination to fall into the ditches of sin and depravity and immorality and unbelief. Doesn't Paul express this in some very glorious way in Romans chapter 7? The Christian experience is that the good we don't want to do, or the good we want to do, rather, we don't, and the evil we don't want to do. We do. We're all driving down life's pathway, you see, and these pressures, these drifts, these experiences are trying to put us into the ditch. And that's what had happened to the Galatian churches. They were in the ditch because they had given in to the pressures of, of false teachers, of Judaizers, of, of these people who had come to them. After Paul had ministered to them, he, they came in behind him and, and they said to these people, oh yes, oh yes, Paul's right. The, the Christ is very important. Of course he is, but you've got to do it too. You've got, you got to do it. If you don't do it, if you're not righteous enough, you can't get saved. And that message of works righteousness, of of self-righteousness spoke to the hearts of the Galatians and it sent them off into the ditch. And when you're in the ditch, you're not traveling anymore. You're not making progress anymore. You're not getting where you need to get. And we need to get to our destination. Our destination isn't Smithville. It's eternity. It's the glorious gates of heaven itself. And if we're going to get there, we've got to walk. We've got to stay on the straight and narrow. But to do that, We have to get the gospel right. That's what Paul wants to do. That's what Paul indicates to us. That's that's why Paul's opening to the Galatians, to the letter to the Galatians, is so much more fulsome than most other openings. If you read the other openings to Paul's letters, you don't find nearly as many words written. 
But here, Paul, right from the very get-go, sounds the note of grace and of God's goodness towards his people so that his readers, so that even we, might be absolutely saturated by the gospel, by the good news. It starts with his saying that he's an apostle, not from men nor by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers with him. He starts by saying, I'm an apostle, not because anybody says so. An apostle, you remember, was um, generally speaking, almost exclusively, though not quite, but almost exclusively a reference to those 12 or 13 men that Jesus appointed for the ministry uh, of witnessing, of going into all the world to bring the gospel to it. You'll remember, of course, that Matthias was elected to replace Judas, who had died, and then Paul was like one born too late, uh, added to their number so that there were 13 in the end. Apostles, unique offices, only in that time of history, only to those men, they, they were the only unique apostles in this respect, but they were handpicked by Christ for the purpose of bringing the good news of salvation to all the world, the good news of God's having redeemed his people. Paul makes clear the significance of this office when he notes that his authority came not from men nor by man, but from God the Father who raised Jesus Christ from the dead. That his authority was not the result of the churches agreeing that he could speak, nor of people acknowledging generally the value of his word. But his authority was from Christ itself, from God the Father who raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And Paul starts at this point, he starts here for a very good reason, and maybe not the reason we imagine. Because the the reason we may imagine uh, when anybody defends their authority, when anybody says, listen, you have, to li- you have to obey me because I'm the minister, I'm the whatever, the, the teacher, I'm the parent, you, I'm the one. Whenever they have to defend their authority, it's generally because uh, they don't feel like their authority is being acknowledged. They feel like they need to assert themselves, that they need to reclaim something that they've lost But for the Apostle Paul, there's something far more important than his own personal priority, his own personal significance. He's not so worried about what people think about him. But he is very concerned about what people think of the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news of salvation that was handed down to him and to his fellow apostles to proclaim to a world a world that needed this message more than anything else. Our world needs this message more than anything else. And that's why our world attacks the question of authority persistently and and consistently. They, they, They attack the Word of God. They tell us that the Bible is not the Bible, that this isn't the Word of God. You can't trust that. It may not speak with authority. It's just a bunch of men writing things they think God would have them say. And we, and our society believes that because it's a culture that does not accept the, the concept of truth with a capital T. 
That his truth that is true, no matter who believes it, no matter who acknowledges it, no matter who teaches it, that there is an authoritative truth. Our world says, no, there's not. There's no authoritative truth from anybody, certainly not a divine revelation. And where you live in a culture or society where that is the pervasive thought, that is the pervasive air that we breathe, then we begin very quickly to question things. We begin, we learn from the earliest days of our lives to doubt, to say, who says and how do you know and and why should I believe you and you're not the boss of me and this sort of thing. Our innate skepticism is fed by the society we live in so that we no longer listen for an authoritative word. An authoritative word. An authoritative word not by virtue of men or by men. That's the kind of authority our world has. I'm the boss because people say I'm the boss, because of who I am and because of me. And and Paul says, no, 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 no. The authority of which I speak is the authority of God. It is God's word given to me as God's servant that I proclaim to the people God sends me to. Paul had an obligation to proclaim a message given to him. He wasn't to make the message up. He was to give it having been given it. And that message was the message of salvation in Jesus Christ. This is why God God established this office of apostle. Think about what Jesus said to to Peter and his apostles, fellow apostles, in Matthew 16. You remember that story? Who do men say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Blessed are you, says Jesus, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. That suggests that at least Peter, but certainly all of the apostles as apostles, were given a great authority, an authority that had eternal significance. What you bind will be bound. What you loose will be loose. Jesus said that to his servants, the apostles, And it's on the foundation or it's on the basis of that apostolic ministry, that entrance, that the entrance into eternity is found. Indeed, doesn't Revelation tell us that? Revelation chapter 21 verse 14 says to us that the apostles are the very foundation of the new heavens and the new earth. Paul, or John rather, is given a a vision of the new heavens and the new earth. And we're told in verse 14 of chapter 21 that the new city of Jerusalem... The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. If you enter into the new Jerusalem, if you achieve the goal to which our hearts are, di- are, are, are directed, you will stand upon the foundation of the apostolic witness. Indeed, that's the battle that waged from the very earliest days of the church. The writer Jude, Jesus' own brother Jude, uh, wrote in his letter in verse 3, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. You had to fight for it. You had to fight for what you were given. 
Not for what people made up, not for what people thought, not for what people believed was true. What you were given from God, that faith that was entrusted to you, you've got to fight for it, says Jude. And indeed, isn't that exactly what the New Testament church did? In Acts chapter 2, we have a description of the church, and not, not just of that church, but what, of what it means to be church. And in verse 42, we're told this, that the uh, church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. They devoted themselves to whose teaching? To my teaching? To your teaching? To somebody else's teaching? To John Calvin's teaching? Martin Luther's teaching? No, to the apostles' teaching. For they were the men appointed by God, given the message to give to the world. They spoke with the authority of God. Now that's a, a very contradictory thought in the culture in which we live. Because here, Paul asks not, what do you think? What do we think? What do we feel? Those are modern ideas. Those are modern concepts. That's what the modern church is about. But Paul says, what did God say? What did God give? What did God appoint? You see, that's why Paul starts this letter as he does. That's why it's so important to him to note that he's an apostle, not by virtue of any man or, by, or from men, but rather from God, because he has a word that is not a, a word we can doubt, not a word that we can question, not a word that we can dismiss and say, well, that's not for me. Oh, it is for you, for it is a word from God. It is a word of grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a word of hope. It's a word of power. It's a word of promise. It's a word of blessing. Grace and peace, those are the things we all need. Those are the things that we all desperately need. Especially in light of what he goes on to say, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age. Paul begins by asserting the authority of God's word. God speaks through his appointed servant, Paul, and the others. And that word speaks a word of hope and power and promise, a word of salvation and of grace. Of grace. This, this note of grace has already begun to be sounded when Paul said that Jesus was raised from the dead by God the Father. Already this notion of God's doing the impossible is, is, is raised by Paul. Now he continues in that vein. He, continues, he, he begins to pile on the terms about how glorious and great God is for what he's done on our behalf. Not only has he raised Jesus from the dead, but he's given Jesus for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age. Here's the heart of the gospel. Here is the good news that all our hearts ought to be encouraged by and we ought to take with us from Paul. We can take, this is a message from God to you through the Apostle Paul, that Jesus Christ has come to save you from this present evil age. The good news is, not what you do, not what you can do, not what you will do, not what you might do, but what He's done. And think of what He's done. His work is entirely redemption-related. He came 
in the flesh. He took on flesh so that He could nail it to the cross, so that He could bear our burden, so that He could come in the likeness of sinful flesh, as Paul says in Romans 8, and might deliver us from the pain and grief of sin. That He might do it, that He would do it perfectly and completely. Indeed, His work is powerful, perfect, and effective. He doesn't come to attempt to save us. He comes to do all that is necessary for our salvation. And what is wonderful to behold is that our our name, our identity, our being appears nowhere in this verse who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age except in the need to be saved. Paul doesn't say he did it with you. Paul doesn't say he did it because you wanted him to. He says he did it to you. He did it for you. He delivered you from your sins. We didn't raise Christ from the dead. God did. We didn't demand him as a savior. God gave him as a savior. So that this grace and peace of which Paul here speaks and of which he communicates now to the church, that grace and peace that begins all of our services, that word of grace and peace to you from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ is a powerful and a potent word. It is a word for all who come into this place grieving over their sin, ashamed and broken because of the mistakes they've made, who come into this place broken in need of help and encouragement, who need power where there is no other power to be found, who need comfort in a comfortless world. We live in a society and in a culture where there is no hope, where there is only condemnation, where there is only judgment, where there is only fear, where there is only anxiety. There's good reason for why our society is going through such an enormous mental health crisis during the time of this pandemic. There is no peace of mind. There is no hope or confidence for our fellow men. But we've been given it. We have been blessed, not by anything that we've done, but by the impossible, the almighty, the remarkable grace of God in Jesus Christ. And Paul would have us again Rest in that sovereign mercy to hear again those precious words, grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of us in our woundedness, in our brokenness, in our failings and our frailty, we've come into this place messed up. And the first word God says to us, and He knows your mess infinitely better than you do, He says grace to you. And peace. Not because of what you can do, not because of what you have done, but because of who He is and what He's done. That's a word that needs to echo in our heart. That's a, that's a word that's worth coming to church for every service to hear. That's it. If all you hear in the service is grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, you have heard enough to justify coming to church because your heart is then reminded of God's goodness towards you. And it refocuses your mind on the blessing that is yours. Our natural bent or inclination is to think that we're good enough, 
that we're able enough and that we're righteous enough. That we, the truth is too many of us come into this place not needing grace and peace, unmoved by these words because we think we're enough or because we think others are worse than us. We come into this place judgmental. We come into this place arrogant. We come into this place self-righteous. We come ticking a box. I'm coming because this is what I have to do. It gets mom and dad off my back. It gets the church off my back. I'm coming to church because that's the thing I have to do. And when we come in that spirit, we don't hear the good news of the gospel. Our ears are plugged by our own self-righteousness. And then we need to pay even more careful attention to those opening words of our service, grace to you in peace. Because they speak to us of our constant need to be brought again to the cross of Calvary. And to see the truth of our condition, of our sinful condition, and our awesome God's grace and glory that delivers us from it. So that we might say again and again how great thou art our amazing God whose salvation is so perfect and powerful, so rich and wonderful that it washes even the worst of us clean so that we need never be ashamed nor live in the power of sin anymore. For we have been freed by a God who has loved us and who has chosen us from time immemorial. According, says Paul, to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. What was, what's according to the will of our God and Father in this passage? Answers the story of redemption. Your redemption. My redemption. What Jesus accomplished on our behalf. That's according not to our desire, not to our plan and purpose, but to the will of God. God chose to save us. Knowing everything He knows about us, He chose to save us. He chose to save us before Jesus came and died on the cross. Jesus didn't convince God to save people. Jesus didn't come and change God's mind about you. He was sent by the Father. It's the will of God that brought Him to this earth. The will of God that was before the, the fall into sin, before the law of God, before we learned all about our need of grace, before even God made us so perfectly and powerfully in the beginning when we in beauty and in holiness dwelt with God in paradise, before the very foundations of the world. Think of that. It's almost impossible for us to be able to captivate that in our minds. Can you imagine what life or what existence or what God was, is before He said, let there be light? What e Can we pierce the veil of eternity and enter into the past that is without beginning or end? It's mind-numbing. But there is where you find God's decision to name you. In his book, he wrote the name of all those who would be redeemed, all of those for whom Jesus would die, all of those for whom the Spirit of Christ would come and work faith in their hearts. We who believe, we who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ have been brought to this place to worship, not because of a decision we made, 
but because in eternity past, God's decision to save us was established. It was planned long before we ever were. And it is secure, for it stands in a place inaccessible to any enemy, to even us. For here's a revelation concerning our God. Our God for whom salvation, your salvation, your blessedness is not some afterthought, not some begrudging work done after frustrating disobedience. God planned your salvation before your parents were born, before your grandparents were born, before your great-great-great-great-great all the way back to Adam and Eve were born. God planned everything including our salvation before there was a beginning. This is the God we worship. This is the God we've come to church today to celebrate. Not a small God, not a minor God, the God. And here's a revelation concerning our salvation, a salvation that can hardly be dependent upon us. It can hardly be the result of our choice. God's will does not include maybes or hopefullys. When God says, I'm saving someone, that person's getting saved. Now, not mechanically, not some, in some puppet way. Don't misunderstand. The Lord uses means. He uses the preaching of the gospel. He uses His Holy Spirit to dwell in our hearts. Of course, there are wonderful and glorious ways in which He brings about that salvation, the death of His Son on the cross, certainly. There's nothing mechanical about salvation. There's nothing that can rob us of its joy and of its power. But there is nothing we can do to change it either. Here's a word to the one who's come today struggling with guilt over sin. Maybe you did something last night. Maybe you did something this past week and you don't think that God will forgive But if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, it's only because He's chosen you before the foundations of the world. And if He chose you then, He chose you in the light of your sins and He wants you to come to Him in repentance and faith in the knowledge that you will be forgiven. Here's a word for all of us in the trials of life when we doubt the faithfulness and the love of God and our hearts question whether or not He is on our side. Here's a word to remind us that He's been on our side from eternity past. Yet here's also a revelation about what it means to be saved, about the purpose of our salvation. For Paul reminds us that we exist not for our own happiness, but for God's glory. Not for patting ourselves on the back, but for worshiping His wonderful mercy. It's according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Do you see that, that this is a, a word that contradicts so much of what goes on for Christianity today? So many of the churches that gather today hear messages about how their lives, how the hearers' lives can be made better, how their marriage can be improved, how their enjoyment, how they can be happy. They go and they listen to Joel Osteen and he tells them how, about how great they are so that they can leave feeling good about themselves, so that they can receive that therapeutic comfort of their own hearts. 
That's what our world has become, hasn't it? About making people feel better about themselves. You can't offend. You can't trigger. You can't any of these modern ideas that are all folly and endless stupidity. Our world is a snowflake world where the most innocuous little heat melts them into nothing. And that's what happens when you put yourself at the center of the story. When the salvation that God worked, when the grace of which Paul speaks, when this enormous power and mercy is to make you happy, you're going to be frustrated. You're going to be tender, not in a good way. You're going to be soft. But when you see that God has done all of these things so that he might be praised, so that you might sing your praises in the worship of God with His people on a Sunday morning, so you might go into your week celebrating what God has done for you, so that you may be encouraged in your marriage, in your parenting, in your service, in your ministry, in your work, so that everything you can do today and in this coming week can be a song of praise when you see that everything is about celebrating God, then you've begun to understand the good news of the gospel. A good news spoken to you by God's appointed servant, Paul. A word spoken to you with authority, but also a word spoken to you of accomplished grace and mercy. A word spoken so ancient, so old. A word of grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a lot of pressure in this world You're going to go into this week and the wind's going to buffet you and your heart, your desires, your emotions are going to want to draw you away. You're going to go into this world, you're going to hit the snow drifts of life that are going to want to put you in the ditch. But here's a word to keep you on the path, to keep you focused and straight, to never give up on this, never surrender this, never lose sight of this of the grace and peace that is yours from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's thank him for it in prayer. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, what a word you speak to us through the Apostle Paul. What an encouraging word, an authoritative word, an accomplished word, an ancient word. May that speak to our hearts, Lord, and may that equip us, not only today, but throughout this week for celebrating, for praising Lord, it is easy to become self-righteous. Help us to avoid the traps laid for us by the world, the flesh, and even the devil himself. Help us to avoid these traps by saying how great thou art, my God, my King. Indeed, help us to live and to walk in the way of your word and of your will. Help us to live, Lord, in sweet communion with you. Hold our hands. Keep us on the path. Keep us near your side. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.